0: So again, we want to be mature disciples. It uh, doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you're struggling. You know, Jesus is not done with you. He wants to bring you to a place where you will be a disciple maker for Him. And part of that is understanding how to process our emotions. So we've been going through a series on God-centered emotions. And for the first two messages, we focus on our emotions and God. And like I mentioned last time, there's whenever you talk about emotions, there, there's not a lot of biblical passages outside of the Psalms that tell you here's how you process anger, bitterness, you know, hurt, sorrow, sadness. Instead, it just tells you, be joyful. You know, don't have sorrow, you know, whatever, right? Don't be angry. What we're trying to do is is go into the Bible, extract out biblical examples to see a process. And that takes some work. So the first two messages, we talked about our emotions and God. So message number one was about how to process your emotions by being able to bring them raw before God who listens to it. And, and, and we looked at Psalm uh, 13 for that. Message number two was about how God uses God sovereignly, our sovereign Christ, right? He uses discouragement and disappointment to reveal deeper desires in our hearts that He alone can satisfy. And, and so last time we get we gathered, it was about here, you want something good. And you're disappointed because God's not giving it to you. But the reason why he's not giving it to you, is because he doesn't want to play a trick on you and give you something that's going to just break your heart later. Instead, he's saying, I'm not giving it to you because what you want is something deeper and only he can satisfy it. All right, so that's what we looked at last time. It was about our emotions and God. For these next two sermons, we're going to look at our emotions in relation to other people. Yes, it's with God, but it's how other people affect our our relationship with God and how that brings us back to God to process our uh, emotional feelings or hurt. Obviously, I'm focusing on negative emotions because I feel like positive emotions, like joy. Um, you know, I, I think when you're joyful, you have joy, okay? Unless you're talking about joy and suffering, which is... Kind of what we're talking about with these messages. Um, Next time we gather, uh, I'm going to talk about processing anger and forgiveness. And then um, in in, in the next month, in March, uh, we'll go into our our emotions and self. And I've asked our our intern, uh, Gabe Lee, to preach one on loneliness. Um, And, (laughs) you know, I... He better preach that. The last time I preached a sermon on loneliness, it was, it was way back for youth ministry, and that was Backstreet Boy days. And I was like, don't give, the title of the message was, Don't Give Loneliness a Chance. You know, I don't know if you guys know that song, because um, Jesus will love you more than that. And, uh, oh, horrible. <laughs> so corny back then. But uh, he's going to do one on loneliness, and I'll do someone on something, I'll find something okay, on, on, on self and our identity, all right? So let's dive in. Tonight's sermon is entitled Sufficient Grace and Perfect Weakness for Our Relational Struggles. When you think of emotions and relationships, meaning not dating relationships, but when people hurt you and you're trying to be faithful with God. Now, I keep saying this if you've done something boneheaded and you get into a conflict with someone, and you're hurt, we're adults, we own up to that. That's on us, okay? I'm talking about you are trying to do something God-centered, trying to evangelize to your dad and, and, and get into an argument, and he says some really mean things to you. You're trying to evangelize. You're trying to confront another brother or sister uh, so, that, so that you can guide them in, in an area where they're walking down a certain path in life, and you're like, you know, that's not good, and I want to confront them, and, and they just don't take a walk. I'm talking about you're trying to minister to people, and, 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 and they... They slander you because um, they don't like you and they want to attack you, okay? Whatever it is, that's what I'm talking about, you know, and and what God does and how God says, you know, I want you to suffer that a little bit. I want you to feel that relational strife because I want to show you something about yourself, okay? And, And when you think of that, there's one book that stands out It's 2 Corinthians. Because in 2 Corinthians, it's the book where you have... Uh, In the New Testament, the largest display, the most robust, widespread display of emotions from Paul, the Apostle Paul. Where he just expresses, and and, and it's almost like from from one spectrum to another, he goes from sorrow to joy. Now, there's not one passage where he tells you how to do that, right? I mean, other than that it's in Christ. But... um, you see despair, you see sorrow, you see gladness, joy, anguish of heart. These are words you see in your Bible. Uh, shedding of tears, love, perplexity, confusion. Is just, but even the word perplex, it's like bending you out of shape, bending your, your, your heart out of shape because you're so confused. Groans, regret, fear, jealousy, mourning, distress. These are the emotions. And you see it all in Paul. So in Paul, you see a complete person. He's bold. He confronts people. Uh, he's, he's confident in Christ. He, he also, I think he, I think he struggles with confidence in terms of pride too. Right? Because he would say he's the chief of sinners. He, he clearly would confront people. Uh, and, but yet, he can show you his weakness. And, and, and he can show you, look, man, this is how broken I am. This is how torn apart I am. And, and I think that's why we can connect with Paul. Right? Because he, he's not on, this, in, uh, on his high horse, even though he should be. Uh, he wrote more books of the Bible in the New Testament than uh, than anybody else, uh, and uh, even even Hebrews. Nobody knows who who wrote Hebrews, right? I mean, everyone has their view, and most scholars today say it's not Paul. But even that, when people are like, "Well, I don't know who wrote it," well, you know, it must have been Paul, because because he he's that great in our minds, but yet he was real and he struggled. So, point number one: What caused Paul? So much emotional turmoil. What was it that caused Paul so much emotional turmoil throughout 2 Corinthians that he expressed himself? Number one, it's, well, simple answer is it's people. It's relationships. People that he loved, that, that hurt him, that some of them betrayed him or he felt that way. And people who were hurting the people that he loved. And they were his opponents and they were tearing his character apart. And saying all these mean, unfair things about him. So, first, what's causing him emotional turmoil is Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthian church. And second, Paul's opponents in Corinth. Okay? So, we're going to get into that a little bit. Alright? Well, first, about his strained relationship with the Corinthian church. I'm not going to go through all of this because you'd have to read a lot of chapters in 2 Corinthians and we'd be here till (laughs) till midnight. Uh, But really, if you check out the front of a study Bible, you know, where it gives you that introduction, it'll tell you uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, You can read into into those passages and, and you'll see that there was a period of time where where Paul, he, he goes into the Corinthian church to address their sin and to address their spiritual struggles. And it didn't go so well. And the people were misled by false teachers. And they rejected Paul. They rebelled against Paul. And in that moment, rather than fighting back, for some reason, Paul's like, you know, this is not worth fighting. I'm not going to get crazy on you here. Uh, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go home. And then he writes them a letter. A, a letter, sorry. <laughs> he, he writes them a letter. And when he writes them a letter, he rebukes them. He just tears into them, okay. And, and I know the Bible has First and Second Corinthians, but there's actually other other le- I don't know why I can't speak tonight. There's other letters <laughs> uh, that he wrote to the Corinthians that's not canonized, meaning it wasn't considered part of the Bible. Okay, so uh, it could be one of those one of those letters, one of those epistles that he wrote to them, and that epistle caused them to to repent. Okay, and some of this, you see some background in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? But, but some of it, it causes them to repent. And so, and so some ways, Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthian church got some reconciliation. But there were still other people who he loved, people in the church who did not take Paul's side. And in fact, they were misled by Paul's opponents, false teachers who were accusing Paul of all types of things. So Paul experienced humiliation. He experienced shame. He experienced betrayal and heartbreak. So, that, so the first thing is his strained relationship uh, with with the Corinthian church, right? People that he loved and poured his life into. I mean, I think that's what breaks our hearts more. Uh, I, I think when you, when you have people who don't really, aren't really cool with you, maybe it could be a coworker. you don't have to live with them, you're not friends with them, they're not your family, you know, you might be annoyed, but it's just like, okay, there's some tension here, I don't have to like you, we don't have to go hang out together. Okay. Okay. Uh, But when you're talking about your friends, your loved ones, your community, your church, and people hurt you, uh, it it does more to your heart. I think that's why Paul has all these emotions. The second thing is his opponents in Corinth. Now, let me say a little bit about them because you'll see what I mean. Okay, what do we know about them? Well, first, uh, we know that they were Jews. Okay, we know that they claimed to be Christians. Most of this is in chapter 10 and chapter 11. We know that they commended themselves by boasting. And so when Paul says, I boast, even though I don't believe in boasting other than boasting in Christ, but I boast, he's kind of making a play on words, kind of a play on things, right? And kind of being sarcastic about it because they commended themselves. They like to do that. Uh, They were spiritually abusive. They abused their spiritual leadership, even though they were false teachers. They charged money for their services. Now, this is different from... Collecting offering uh, for the sake of the church or being funded as a missionary, okay and we know that Paul collects offering too for the poor saints in Jerusalem. We know that he received financial support from the Philippians. Okay? so this is not saying that that you know you don't collect support, but they charge money for their services, and Paul didn't for some reason. He chose to tent make, which means he literally made tents. he was bivocational, which means he had a normal Vocation and then he ministered full time, and he did that in Corinth. That worked for him, okay. Uh, and he, they, the false teachers or, or the, the, his opponents, they made it their aim to personally tear down Paul's character and credibility. Now, I'm going to flip this so you need to take a picture of something. Okay, what were their criticisms? One, and get this, and, and imagine just put yourself in his shoes, okay. They attacked and mocked him personally. For the silliest things, his appearance. Like, I don't know, like, like you're short, or I don't know if he was bald or something, you know? Uh, his boldness and his confidence. They made fun of him. They, they were kind of saying, like, hey, you came to confront the church, they got mad at you, and, and you were, like, wheat sauce. You left, and you wrote them a letter, and you were all strong in that letter. So, so it's kind of like, you know, the people who are crazy on, behind a computer, but they won't fight you in person. That's what they were making fun of Paul. They're saying, you are weak. You're not bold in person. You're, you have no confidence. But hey, when you're with your pen, then you get all crazy on them. Now, you know, and, and, and God has a purpose for why the Lord wanted to put it into writing rather than Paul getting crazy on them in person. Right? But they're, they're mocking him for that. Uh, they made fun of his speaking style. Because uh, some say that maybe he stuttered or he wasn't, uh, I, I believe he was probably a good speaker. You know, you, you see even in the book of Acts how he uses speech and how he uses culture and, 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 and social science at that time and, and Greek mythology and ties it in. And, he, you know, he's a, uh, he was a Pharisee. I mean, he could speak, but I don't know what they're talking about. They're making fun of him because maybe they were more flashy, more charismatic more of a stage, they were more stage preachers, right? They accused Paul of financial deception because he wouldn't take funds. And this is the crazy thing. So, so what, they, what, they, what they accused him of is, is so, so the background behind this is, Paul takes an offering from the Corinthians to gather uh, money to raise funds for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But he does it through Titus, one of his servants. Okay? And, and, and they're like, hey, Paul, You don't take any money, you don't charge any money, but then you send your little guy to collect money in the name of offering and you probably pocket that money. So they're accusing him, making an accusation of embezzlement, of being deceptive and being deceitful. That's a personal attack on Paul's character. That's more than just, you know, you're a boring speaker or you don't look good or... Yeah, but they're personally attacking his character. And obviously he couldn't be there in person to defend himself. These are, that's the church that he loved and poured his heart into. So how would he feel, obviously? He has a stake in it. And then they called Paul inferior, a nobody compared to other super apostles. And they called themselves super apostles. So that gives you a picture of why Paul, sitting there, you know, miles away, is just going through emotional turmoil, and he writes this, uh, this letter where, where you see a wide range of his emotions, okay? So that's point number one. So point number one tonight was what caused Paul so much emotional turmoil? Well, first, his strained relationship with the Corinthian church. Second, uh, his opponents in Corinth. Uh, point number two. Point number two is why did God ordain God's, why did God ordain Paul's turmoil? Why did God ordain because this is funny. You go to chapter 12, and Paul, Paul's saying, God gave this to me. You, you read it, and you're like, this is God ordained. God has a purpose for it, which is just wild. Okay? But there's two things I want you to see. First, in chapter 11, 23 to 28, it's to keep Paul from boasting about his great suffering, because he had all these credentials. He was way qualified, but they were attacking. He's not qualified to be an apostle. He's not a real apostle. He's a false apostle. He was way qualified because he suffered a lot. okay. And then secondly, it was to keep Paul from boasting about this heavenly vision that he got 14 years ago. I mean, to, to have that vision, I mean, it's like, Paul, you win every single debate. I'm going to show you this. okay? But Paul has to be humble. Right? So... If you don't have God's word, take it. And here's where we're going to dive into the text a little bit. And again, I'm I'm taking this from an overview, right? Because we're, we're trying to do a topical series. I right, So chapter 11, 23 to 28. Let me read this to you. This is Paul's suffering. This is pretty intense. This is pretty crazy. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, cold and exposure, and apart from other Things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever and knows that I'm not lying. Right? And he goes on and on. So that's an example of his suffering. That's his suffering. Now, if you have that type of suffering, and someone accuses you, hey, you're false, you're, you're not a real apostle, I mean, he he kind of loses it here, I mean, he doesn't lose it because this is God inspired, but he's like, you're calling me fake, you want to boast? Let me show you how much I suffered. Now, we shouldn't do this, okay, we, we, you know, especially in our culture, I mean, we, this just seems so boastful, when I say our culture, I'm, I'm talking about Western culture, you know, I, I think people would look at this and say, how, why are you going up there telling people all about your suffering? But, but he does this to make a point, to say, even though I ought to boast, I'm not going to. But if you want to call me out, let me just remind you, Corinthians, of what you already know about me. About my credentials and my suffering. But God humbles him so that, he, so that this wouldn't be his main boast. That this wouldn't be his credibility. Get this. Paul's greatest boast was not his own suffering. It was the suffering of Christ on the cross. It it, it wouldn't be any mission or anything that he would suffer for the people. His greatest boast was not his own suffering. It was the suffering of Christ. That's his main message in 1 Corinthians. I preach Christ, Paul says. Christ crucified. But it goes goes deeper. To keep Paul from boasting about his heavenly vision. Let me show you the heavenly vision. Go to chapter 12 now. This is the main text I want to focus on tonight. Look at verses 1 to 6. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Uh, You don't have to, but he does, right? Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he's talking about himself. This This is funny. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I don't even know what that is, guys. I can't find that in the Bible. He even says it's not, it's not describable. So if you ask me, Hanley, can you exposit that for us? The third heaven. I don't know what it is. Only Paul does. That's how, how amazing this is, right? Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. And we understand that is it was so great, so heavenly, so out of this world that it's undescribable, indescribable, indescribable by human terms that you couldn't even put words to it or an illustration to it. And verse five, on behalf of this man, I will boast. And on my, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, which means that was me okay he's, he's saying that he's boasting but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me so God says Paul I gave you this amazing vision and I don't give this to every apostle I believe there's a reason why this is inferred okay I believe there's a reason why God would give him this heavenly vision I mean the apostle John got revelation but we all got that he wrote it down and gave it to us Okay, uh, but, but not every apostle or New Testament follower of Christ gets these crazy heavenly visions. Why would, why would God give that to Paul? Why does Paul need that? Well, what did we just read at the end of chapter 11? I mean, to suffer that much, you need some reassurance. And I think what drove Paul was that Paul saw Christ. Remember how Paul was saved. He was, he was on his way to persecute Christians... Uh, Jesus Christ shows up, pre, uh, I mean, incarnate glory, not pre-incarnate, but resurrection glory, knocks him off his horse, literally, and just says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And I don't know if it's there that he got that vision, but, but somehow Paul saw Christ face to face. And God must have revealed some of this to him. And that's probably his calling and that vision probably drove him through all the suffering he, he wouldn't give up because he's, he says, I can't give up because I know what's true, because I've seen what's true. Because God has revealed it to me. There's no way that could be false. There's no way this was an illusion. There's no way I was on drugs or something. This is for real. And so I believe that the reason why God doesn't give that to us, right? God, why don't you give me this third vision, this third heaven vision? Because my plan is not for you to suffer like Paul. And so I, I believe that the vision, and this is my inference, and there's other scholars that infer, infer this too, is the reason why Paul got this vision was because it matched the degree of his suffering. But God gives him something else. saying, knowing that having a vision like that can make you proud, imagine, just imagine Paul debating with anybody, any apostle. And, and, and they're arguing about theology, Jews and Gentiles, or whatever circumcision, do you need to be circumcised or not? He's, he's debating with Peter. And, you know, Paul could pull rank. Did you... Get this vision? How many books did you write? You know, and But Paul doesn't have that. Paul doesn't have that because God humbles him. So you see that in verse 7. I mean, um, yeah, starting in verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. is that God ordained a thorn in the flesh to keep Paul humble because God wanted, one, to magnify his sufficient grace for Paul, and two, to perfect his power through Paul's weakness. Let me show you this now. Okay, let's look to the text. Let's look at verse 7. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. And he tells you, here's why I suffered. It's not by chance. These opponents aren't winning. He knows that, that the Corinthians are struggling and that these people are attacking him And he's going through this emotional turmoil because, he says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. He's saying, because the vision was so great, I'm prone to wander, I'm prone to be proud. And so God helped me, a thorn was given to me. Who else is going to give you something like that, Paul? Well, he's talking about God, that God would give him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. So what is a thorn in the flesh? The Greek word used for thorn here, it you know, when I first read this and all the times I read it until recently, you know, I, I think of like, you know, what do you think of rosebush, right? A rosebush, fall into a rosebush and you're like, okay, I need to put a band-aid on. Uh, you know, and at the end of the day you you look at the Greek and it's not that type of thorn. <coughs> this thorn is is like a spike, like a stake, like something you would pitch a tent with. And so just imagine he's giving a metaphor, not literal a metaphor as if that's what it feels like. A thorn has been stuck into his flesh and it won't go away. And he's asking God, will you remove it? And God says, no. And it's a metaphor. And and some scholars say this is a physical, maybe it's his eyesight, you know, and, and... um you know maybe he's he, he he's he's struggling with his eyesight or something like that i don't know if that's true you know um some say say that it was it was some physical disease i don't know if that's that's what it is because he kind of tells you what it is when he says a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of satan to harass me he's personified it he's put people to it and in the context of second corinthians this seems like it would be the false teachers. It would be his opponents to torment him, to go after him and many other people who attacked him. You know, God permitted this thorn to keep Paul humble. It was to keep Paul from becoming conceited because of the crazy visions to harass him. Who else is harassing him? Uh, I I don't know if a disease can harass you. You can say like, wait, this is a nagging back ache, But to harass him I believe he's talking about his opponents, and, and I, think, I think there's enough scholarship and commentaries that would take that position and that view. So let's go with that tonight. Okay, and so Satan was using these deceptive false prophets to sway the Corinthians to turn against Paul. But Paul says, God is sovereign over that. Right, so what's his process immediately? Well, one, he's emotional. Two, he's clearly, he says, I'm talking like a madman. Okay, he's keeping it real. This is hard for me. I'm talking like a madman. But then immediately he says, God is sovereign. He doesn't write that, but, he's, you know, but he says, to keep me from being conceited. So, one, he says God is sovereign. Two, he says, this is for my sanctification. This is for my good. This is for my humbling. This is to break me down. This is to keep me more crucified to Christ so that I can preach Christ crucified. Because how can I preach the cross unless I'm walking the cross? And so Paul Paul understands the the weight of the calling that's given to him requires him to suffer like his Messiah because he's going to write about Christ. And that's also why, you know, even though like my, anything that I've ever struggled with is nothing like Paul, I feel like, you know, we need to be transparent a little bit about our own struggles. You know, know, God will uh, allow us to go through struggle so that we can minister to other people. That's part of making disciples. That's part of, you know, listening to preaching, uh, maybe going to the biblical counseling stuff, uh, being fed by it, you know, joining your groups, your small groups, your discussion groups, caring for one another. And what do you do with that? When when God begins to bring healing to you, you have to be pouring that into somebody else. So, So that's the idea is that God lets us suffer, humbles us, breaks us so that we can serve him. You see that in Paul. And that's why we love Paul and cherish him, because God broke him. You don't want a proud Paul. He would make you cry. You don't, you don't want that, Paul. And you look at Paul when he was younger. Right? We're preaching through Mark right, in, in Sunday service. This is the same Paul. Mark, you're, not, you're too slow with this. You're not getting with the program. You can't come on the mission trip with me. You can't work with me. I want just people who are like, type A, just go. Now, I want to take Luke. You know, Luke's a doctor. And a historian. I'll take him with me. Timothy. He does whatever. You know, I'm just kidding. He does whatever I say, but that's not true. You know, Timothy's a godly man. Okay? I want Titus. Now, John Mark forget you. But how in the world did John Mark end up with Peter? Peter knows what it's like to mess up. Peter knows what it's like to fail. And Peter knows what it's like. i got to make a disciple. So I don't know what it is, but somewhere it's written later that, you know, Paul... And John, Mark, I'm sure they made up and reconciled and were cool. But I don't know if you wanted a non-broken, non-humbled, unhumbled Paul. Paul. Right, so over the course of Paul's life, I'm sure that the Lord softened his heart. But you see this because Mark becomes a powerful servant of Christ. right? And so the question could be, well, Paul, why didn't you make a disciple? See, that's what we all learn, even the greatest ones like Paul. Right? We 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 learn that sometimes God has to break us and humble us so that we can make disciples. Otherwise, we're going to be like Kobe Bryant. Yeah, you know, I think he's better now. He he loves to be a mentor. I love that. I, again, I'm not supporting his character, but I, but I I love the guy. Okay, basketball wise. But you know, like Michael Jordan, he can't coach because he'll just be there, Watch me do this. Why can't you do it? And you can imagine if if that's a young early Paul. God breaks him. God softens him, right? So that he can make disciples. And, and notice what he says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. But he said to me, My grace. Ah. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need your suffering to go away. You need my grace. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. In your brokenness, my power will be magnified because if you are not weak, then you're going to just show everybody your strengths and your accomplishments and your achievements. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And and how does that preach? Because when you look at chapter 11 and, and you said, Paul, why didn't you give up? Why didn't you take a sabbatical? Why didn't you give up? Because I would have just been broken already. I would have retired. I would have left. It's because God's grace was sufficient for him. And that's why. So the the Christ power, we look at the end of chapter 11. We don't see Paul. We see the glory and the grace and the power of Christ sustaining his servants. That's what we see. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to see. He doesn't want us to see him. He wants to see how on earth does someone go through that much suffering and not turn away from Jesus Christ. Because of the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, working through Paul, the power of Christ being manifested through Paul's brokenness, physical ailments, emotional elements. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I'll live in this tension of emotional madmanness, right? Madness. I'm content with it. I'm content with being insulted, insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecutions. I'm content with calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. He's content with a lot of, I me. Mean, I, when, I, when I was single, I struggled with being content being single. I mean, I, I mean I'm not going to be content with hardships. This guy's content with hardships. And so that tells us where our hearts need to go. And I think sometimes, especially for, for those of you who want to do ministry, and you're like, I want to be like Paul. And, and God's saying, don't be so quick to ask for that. The reason why Paul got to be like that, God broke him. That broke him. And that's why he's our apostle, right? That's why he writes like like the way he writes and God inspired him. You see, in verse 9, what we see is that God wanted to magnify, and the point's up there for you, God wanted to magnify his sufficient grace and and perfect his power. So, yeah, we all have the Holy Spirit, but do we depend often on the Holy Spirit or do we, as Christians, knowing we have the Holy Spirit, we forget and we just depend on our own flesh? Because we're, we're all in process. And what God wants to do in Paul is perfect his power through the Holy Spirit, through Paul's weakness. That Paul calls out, cries out to God on his knees. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. And God says, be content with it. I'm not taking it away. All right. Barbara Duguid. I, I, I love this book. Barbara Duguid. Any of you guys heard of her? Maybe you've heard of her husband, Ian. Barbara Duguid Writes this book called *Extravagant Grace*. I'm going to tell you, tell something to you men. Um, you you could probably tell the way that I preach, the theology that I like. There's a lot of just, you know, I'm, you know. Maybe my generation too is just like get in your face kind of thing. I try to soften up. Um, nobody has shepherded my my heart in understanding Pauline theology, Pauline theology, Paul's theology, than female writers. Like Nancy Gut- Guthrie, I can't pronounce a th today. Nancy Guthrie, Barbara D- Duguid. I mean, you, 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 you're talking about Bible teachers, Reformed, Presbyterian, Muslim, and they just write in a certain way where I'm like, I, I would have never saw it that way. The, the guy preachers that I, I listen to or pastor wouldn't write it that way. They'd write it with a lot more force. And sometimes they're straight up, like mama telling it to you. Okay, Like mama telling it to you because she's, she's more senior. I couldn't put everything on, on the screen. It's not, it's not that spectacular. Uh, it's not that awesome. It's, it's not something like totally crazy, right? But let, let me read to you how she explains in this book this verse. Okay? And she writes Paul serenely concluded, so he had peace, that God had a good purpose in refusing his requests. He understood that the story of his life, so the story of his entire life, his testimony, was never meant to exalt and glorify him. It was meant to point to another. Now, stop there for a second. How many times is it like, Jesus, you saved me, so now I'm going to go minister for you? Now it's about me and my ministry for you. I mean, I mean you guys aren't pastors, but you know, this is my, my small group. Jesus, you saved me, you gave me the whole Spirit. Now, now, this is my ministry. You look at all the conflicts in the church. This is my area of, of whatever, small grouping. This is my this is my kitchen. <laughs> this, is, this is my whatever thing. I, I, oh oh young person comes you guys young person comes along no 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 we're not doing it your way we're doing it my way what, you think, what happened to you what happened to the brokenness when you walked down the aisle when you when when, when Jesus broke you in your bedroom and you were reading Romans and you cried and you said Lord I surrendered to you what happened to that spirit right, but Paul understands because of this that his Story of his life, his testimony was never meant to become a boast for himself, but was to, was to exalt and glorify him, Christ. It was meant to point to another. If God had answered all of Paul's prayers and made him strong and triumphant in every way, we would still be marveling at what a wonderful person Paul was. I think this is what I put up here, right? So, but, we don't marvel at Paul. Instead of removing Paul's thorn do good rights. He said, God said, no, Paul, I like you better with it. Just never thought of that. You know, at face value, I read this a few times, I'm like, what is this? This is thought just passed my mind. I said, I got to think deeper about this. No, Paul, I like you better with it. And so sometimes we pray to God, God, take away this trial, take away this trial, take away these emotions. And God's saying, You're, this is how I want you to process. Actually, I like you with that. But God, I, I don't like myself with that. But I don't want you to like myself. I want you to like Christ. I want you to die to yourself. God, please take this, whatever it is you're struggling with. God, take this away from me. God says, I like you better with it. You're more useful for me with it. You're more on your knees with it. I'm going to give to, sometimes God's like, you're better tired because you pray more before you do any ministry because you beg me for energy. Like tonight, and like ever since ever since um, my daughter was born, I mean, it's like every sermon, everything, every. Let me, so this week, you guys can pray for me. I'm I'm doing this, and then I'm gonna teach the Sunday school, and I'm gonna preach, and before everyone, I'm like, God, please just get me through it, just <laughs> just get me through it. And then, but when I'm up there, I don't know if you guys can see it that I'm I'm just tired, and it's okay, you know, because I think that's where God wants me to be. And when I'm tired, I'm gonna love more, because I'm gonna be praying more. And it's going to be less me and more of him, right? And any passion that comes out, it's going to be more of him and less of me. And this helps me understand it, right? It says, no, Paul, I like you I like you better with it. And instead, we're left marveling at Jesus Christ who delivered Paul from his body of death by dying in his place. Most of us will not suffer the way Paul suffered. But nonetheless, we can look at our trials and our struggles and say, God, what do you want to do with our emotions that he wants us to to be crucified with Christ. And you can understand why God allowed all of Paul's suffering so that Paul would understand the power of the cross. So when you sing that song, you know, the power of the cross, it can get routine. I don't know if it gets routine for Paul because that was his life. And so this makes sense when you read First 2 uh, Corinthians. This makes sense. I mean, when you're that broken, physically already messed up, uh, you know, Physically tired, being beaten—you know—all everything that he wrote in chapter eleven, and then you can imagine Paul going to God and saying, "God, the last—I'm just—I'm just trying to serve you. I'm, just, I'm you you gave me this mission. Make it easy for me. The last thing I need is for this church that's growing for you to allow these false teachers to come in, turn them personally against me. I don't need this, God. It's not like I'm out there partying. It's not like I'm there—you know—trying to make money or anything. I'm trying to serve you. This is the last thing I need." But that success, right, so Paul is probably one of the most successful examples of ministry we see in the New Testament. Yet that success came with one of the guys who suffered the most in the New Testament. And, and you can see what God would do, saying, suffering leads to you to be successful in the name of Christ. And that success keep you humble, give you suffering, right? So when he writes this, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That makes sense. You see, for, for me and you, we read that, and it's good here in the head. And we like it. talks about our, our, you know, our, our union with Christ, our, our, our justified standing with Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But that's all doctrine and theology. What about our lives? How, how can we know that so well, but yet our hearts so easily get discouraged and down? You know, and so he gets it. His word, the word of God in Paul has become flesh. Because the thorn in the flesh has caused him to, he can say this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You look at that and you read the back end of our passage again, 1 Corinthians 12:9, and, and, and it totally makes sense when, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of, of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest in me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. You put those two together. And that's Paul. Here's the big idea of tonight's message. God's grace is sufficient for every emotional struggle because His power is perfected in our weakness. Our emotional struggles show the finite nature of our hearts. It shows us how we can believe in something so firmly in the mind, yet our hearts take so long to really believe it when we're hurting. That we need to go through a process. Last time I t- last time we were together, I talked about the layers of the gospel working through our hearts and how to, just the week before that, and the time before that, how to bring ourselves before God, just, just real emotions so that God can heal us. Well, we bring it before God because we know His grace is sufficient for us. And, and, and He gives you His grace through Christ. And He gives you special graces too, like like people to encourage you, the Word of God to inspire you. Um, you know, sometimes when we suffer, we, we, we realize all the little the blessings that we usually overlook when everything is good. And those are all the little blessings that God kind of reminds us when we go through hardship because his power is perfected in our weakness. Struggle is one way the word becomes flesh for us as Christ followers. And it takes the doctrine that we believe, allows us to embody it in our relationship with Christ. And relational strife is what you see here tonight, right? And, and, and it caused Paul to look at himself. It caused Paul to look at himself, not blame the other people. But to really look at himself and you, you, you see the heart of relational strife dealing with it here. So, so let me just go one level deeper, okay? So you'll have to try to follow me on this. A lack of grace from people, that's a, that's a cause of relational strife. And a lack of grace from us towards others can lead to relational strife. So when you can put that together... Okay, relational strife when your relationships are good and everything's fine it doesn't make you think at a certain level through certain contexts but when you experience a relational strife with people that you love and you care for then a lack of grace from those people these people you love you expect them Paul saying I don't expect the opponents to love me but Corinthians it breaks my heart because I expected you to back me up see what I'm saying? that makes the grace of God real and Paul's saying man I know the grace of God and I expect this from God's people and, and so, so what's the heart of what's the heart of this conflict is that Paul expected them to treat him a certain way and he didn't experience that grace from them right? they, they didn't show him grace what, what, what would have grace been like what would grace been like no that's our apostle we're going to check with him first we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's our apostle He's our pastor, and we know him personally. You guys are cool. You guys have this crazy message. You guys charge us for money. You know, whatever, you false apostles. You guys are cool, but we're going to have grace towards our apostle, and we're going to go ask him, are these things true? But they didn't show Paul grace, but he expected that, right? So relational strife helps us understand what it means to live in the grace of God because when you don't have grace from people, the only thing you have left is the grace of God but it helps you understand yourself. And then when you flip it around, when we sin against others relationally, whether it's not forgiving, being angry, being judgmental, gossiping about people, rather than showing them grace, like, oh, you know what? They must just be struggling. I should give them the benefit of the doubt. Whatever it is, we are not embodying the grace of Christ. So Paul understands that, that when he doesn't have grace in relationships, it is the grace of God that's sufficient. Now that's a deeper level. And so the heart of the emotional process for us is Do you understand the sovereign grace of God? Do you understand the continual grace of God? Do you understand what it means personally to to capture the idea that God's grace is sufficient for every emotional struggle? And how does he give you that grace? How do you experience that grace and feel it and embody it is actually when you cry out for it. And the way you cry out for it is when life is hard. And when life is hard, you can first turn to your friends. But when you're lonely... What a friend I have in Jesus. Jesus, I my cross have taken it's emo, you know? But when you get to that point right when you feel alone, when you feel deserted, even if it's not true, when you feel like you're a place of emotional an emotional wilderness, then at that point these things become real and then it means a lot and 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 you cry out for Christ